48K News. It's 11 o'clock. I'm Todd Harding. Tonight's headlines. The government eases social distancing measures. Police arrest three people on suspicion of breaching the national security law. And two mainland academics are named top management positions at the University of Hong Kong, despite concerns from some students and faculty members. Bars and restaurants will open till 2am and operate at greater capacity and public beaches will reopen as the government moved to further relax social distancing measures thanks to a drop in COVID-19 cases. Damon Pang has more. The Health Secretary Sophia Chen said from Friday, restaurants will be allowed to seat up to six people per table, up from four currently, while bars and nightclubs can seat a maximum of four people per table and increase from two at the moment. In addition, they can operate at 75% capacity, up from 50% right now, and extend their opening hours by two hours from midnight. Meanwhile, Ms Chen said customers at bars and nightclubs will be required to wear a face mask whenever they leave the table. Members of the public must only take off their mask to consume food or drink at the table, but not at any other places, within bars or pubs and clubs and nightclubs. In other words, a person must not eat or drink and must wear a mask when he or she is away from the table. The health chief also announced the reopening of public beaches after months of closure. She said the Leisure and Cultural Services Department will provide more information later. Capacity at other sports and entertainment facilities such as swimming pools, theme parks and performance venues will also go up to 75% from half. Ms Chen said the latest round of measures took into consideration people's needs as well as the overall economic situation. She said generally speaking, it's still important that the public shouldn't be gathering. But the government has decided not to ease a ban on gatherings of more than four people for the time being, with the health chief insisting they want to stick to a gradual and targeted relaxation of social distancing measures. Catering sector lawmaker Tommy Cheung welcomes the relaxation but said it should have come earlier. The government, if you ask me, my personal opinion is they are relaxing it too slowly. I thought the government could be braver to relax it a bit sooner and a little bit quicker. But even as it is, I'm happy that they're relaxing it this coming week. Good for my bars with Halloween business. Police say three people have been arrested on suspicion of breaching the national security law in connection with social media posts made since September. The suspects are believed to be former members of the pro-independence group Student Localism. Maggie Ho reports. The force said its National Security Unit had arrested the three, aged between 17 and 21, in Central, Shatin and Tunmun, on suspicion of inciting others to split the country. Earlier in the day, student localism said former leader Tony Jung and ex-members Yanni Ho and William Chan had been arrested. A group calling itself Friends of Hong Kong sent a statement to media saying it had been trying to arrange for Mr Jung to make an asylum application at the US consulate. The trio and another former member of the group had already been arrested under the national security law in July, also on suspicion of inciting secession. Police said there had been posts online calling for the establishment of a Hong Kong nation. But the four were not charged with any offence and were released on bail. The University of Hong Kong's Governing Council has appointed two mainland scholars as vice presidents, with one refuting reports that he's a member of the Chinese Communist Party. Francis Sitt reports. 
Maxim was named Hong Kong Youth Vice President of Research, while fellow Tsinghua University academic Gong Peng will head up academic development. They are to begin five-year terms starting in January 2021. Media reports have pointed out that Professor Shen had until recently been listed as a member of the Communist Party Committee at Tsinghua University. But addressing the controversy for the first time, the academic issued a statement saying, I am not a member of the Chinese Communist Party and I'm also not in the the party committee as claimed by the reports. Professor Shen said his name only appeared on the list because of an oversight by the webmaster, and he had been erroneously named as a committee member several years ago as an honorary department chair. He also distanced himself from Tsinghua, stressing that he only spends a few weeks there every year, with the approval of his employer, California's UC Berkeley. You're listening to RTHK. The time is coming up to five minutes past eleven. Well, several dozen students held a peaceful protest outside the building where the council met to approve the appointments. The president of the student union, EDR, described the appointments as the end of academic freedom and institutional autonomy. She says students won't accept the two scholars as vice presidents and will explore legal means such as a judicial review to overturn the decision. We believe that it is a part of the Chinese Communist Party Party's action to take over the university. And we can see that actually they have made certain moves in the past few months to make sure that university students will stay calm and stay where we should be, as they have said. But uh, taking charge of the academic development as well as the research will affect the academic development of the whole university. Council member Brian Stevenson dismissed concerns of some form of Communist Party takeover of the university, saying there's no question that academic freedom at the university would be affected in any way. I can assure you every member of that council is committed to academic freedom. Absolutely. There's no suggestion of no academic freedom. If anybody wants to talk to me, if any students want to talk to me, if you want to put me in front of a forum of students, I personally am delighted to do that. Chief Executive Carrie Lam says she'll be making a three-day trip to Beijing next week to discuss her proposals to stimulate the local economy with the central government. Damon Pang reports. Mrs. Lam says she will go to Shenzhen for quarantine after next Tuesday's Executive Council meeting, stay for a night and then head north. On her way back, she will go to Guangzhou and Shenzhen again. The CE says she was originally envisaging a one-day trip to the capital, but the longer visit won't affect her plan to announce her delayed annual policy address late next month. Five ministers will join Mrs. Lam on her visit to the capital, mainland affairs chief Eric Zhang, transport chief Frank Chen, health minister Sylvia Chen, IT head Alfred Sid, and financial services minister Christopher Hoy. The CE was asked whether she will talk to mainland officials about allowing Hong Kongers on the mainland to vote in SAR elections. My trip to Beijing this time is solely on the economic side. In light of the economic situation, which of course is very serious in Hong Kong, so at the moment there is no plan to talk about other subjects, including the one that you have mentioned. Mrs. Lam says it's difficult to get a consensus on issues with a mainland dimension like the elections, and her administration is revisiting this idea as it had been brought up in the legislature in the past. Cathay Pacific's flight attendants union was left disappointed after talks with management over their concerns about new contracts that will see their pay slashed. 
The company asked staff to sign new contracts after axing thousands of jobs and shuttering its Cathay Dragon brand as it struggles to survive the fallout from the coronavirus pandemic. The new contracts are part of a major restructuring effort and the airline has given staff until Wednesday to sign. Union Vice Chairwoman Amber Soon said the management has made no meaningful concessions. That, that shows that they have no intention at all. They show no good faith or sincerity in negotiating with us. However, we are, we are not giving up at this stage. So uh, By tomorrow, we are going to have a meeting with Labour Department and we, we will uh, be seeking legal advice further to determine our next action. The Hong Kong Aircrew Officers Association also wants more information from Cathay. The union represents around 2,200 pilots and is led by General Secretary Chris Beebe. Uh, there are a number of things that are very large, very significant, will have an impact on their career and uh, have not yet really been answered. So that's what we need. That's what we need. More than that, though, we have had no discussions with Cathay Pacific on their restructuring plan whatsoever. And so, yes, if, it's, if we can, we certainly would like to be a party to those discussions. We certainly would like to discuss with them the future of Cathay Pacific and its employees, rather than having them do what is, quite frankly, heavy-handed and, uh, and giving people no option whatsoever. China says it will take necessary measures to uphold its sovereignty and security interests after the United States approved another arms sale to Taiwan, worth more than $2 billion U.S. dollars. Foreign Ministry spokesman Wang Wenbin urged Washington to stop such transactions to prevent further damage to China-U.S. relations. The U.S. sales of arms to Taiwan severely violate the One China principle, interfere in China's internal affairs, severely damage China's sovereignty and security interests, and severely harm U.S.-China relations and peace and stability in the Taiwan Strait. China firmly opposes this. Another sale worth 1.8 billion US dollars was approved earlier this month and prompted Beijing to sanction the US arms manufacturers involved. India and the United States have signed a military agreement to share sensitive satellite data against the backdrop of India's military standoff with China in the Himalayan region of Ladakh. The announcement came during annual high-level talks in Delhi. The US Secretary of State Mike Pompeo spoke of strengthened cooperation in confronting China. The challenge of defeating the pandemic that came from Wuhan also fed into our robust discussions about the Chinese Communist Party. Our leaders and our citizens see with increasing clarity that the CCP is no friend to democracy nor to freedom of navigation, the foundation of a free and open and prosperous Indo-Pacific. Beijing has warned Mr Pompeo not to, in its words, coerce and bully Sri Lanka, which has close ties with China and is Mr Pompeo's next stop. Seven people have been killed in a bomb attack on a religious school in the Pakistani city of Peshawar. More than 50 others are reported to have been wounded, some critically. The BBC's Sakanda Kamani reports. Footage of the aftermath of the explosion shows extensive damage to the main prayer hall of the mosque where classes for the students had been taking place. Police officials say they believe it was caused by a bomb hidden in a bag. The number of attacks by militants in Pakistan's major cities has greatly reduced in recent years, and the motive for this attack is not yet clear. Prime Minister Imran Khan has expressed his condolences and promised those responsible will be brought to justice. 
HSBC has reported a 36% pre-tax drop in third quarter profits as it warned of heightened geopolitical risks to its growth prospects and profitability in the SAR. The bank says it's monitoring and assessing the impact of ongoing developments on US sanctions on entities and individuals here as a result of Beijing's national security law in Hong Kong. But Group Chief Executive Noel Quinn says HSBC remains committed to the Hong Kong market. We're confident in our ability to uh, navigate uh, the increasingly complex regulatory environment and uh, you know, we're committed to complying with the laws and regulations in every market we operate in. We fully acknowledge that there is a level of complexity there today given the geopolitics but we're confident of our ability to navigate that situation. He also says there will be an update on the bank's dividend policy in February. We are working hard to get back to being able to pay dividends. And we seek to pay a conservative dividend if circumstances allow with respect to the 2020 financial year. The board's decision on whether to pay a dividend will depend on economic conditions in early 2021 and be subject to regulatory consultation. Hong Kong exports rebounded from a six-month contraction in September with new figures showing the value of exports grew 9.1% in September. Imports also rose. They're up 3.4% year-on-year. The government says the surge in exports was led by growing demand from the mainland. In sport, Barcelona president Josep Maria Bartomeu has refused to resign, arguing this would be the worst time to abandon the club. The 57-year-old decided against stepping down from his position following a crunch meeting in Catalonia on Sunday, a day after Barca's 3-1 loss to Real Madrid. Pressure has been mounting on Bartomeu after a series of controversies. Here's the BBC's Rob Schofield. This is the first time in the club's history that Barcelona fans have voted to withdraw their confidence from a sitting president and there was speculation that Bartomeu may resign rather than face a vote. Instead, he's written a personal open letter to the fans saying he has no reason to resign, arguing that this would be the worst time to abandon Barca. Bartomeu's opponents want that vote to begin this Sunday, but his letter asks for a two-week delay in order to prevent voters all having to gather at the club's Camp Nou stadium in a time of local coronavirus restrictions. A later vote would also allow some of the anger caused by the weekend's 3-1 home defeat by bitter rivals Real Madrid to subside. In the NFL, the Los Angeles Rams overwhelmed the Chicago Bears on Monday night football. LA quarterback Jared Goff threw touchdown passes to Josh Reynolds and Gerald Everett and the Rams came away with a 24-10 victory. Both teams now have five wins and two losses on the season. A reminder of our top stories tonight, the government eases social distancing measures. Police arrest three people on suspicion of breaching the national security law. And two mainland academics are named to top management positions at the University of Hong Kong, despite concerns from some students and faculty. The news from RTHK. RTHK, Radio 3. It's time now to look at stories covered in this evening's News Wrap programme. The catering sector is cheering the government's decision to ease back coronavirus control measures from Friday. Restaurants and bars will be allowed to serve more guests and stay open until 2am. Anna-Marie Evans asked Simon Wong, President of the Federation of Restaurants and Related Trades, how much these changes would help. Of course we are in favour of the change of the measure and this is actually a good news for the catering industry. And I see that 
the relaxation from a table of four people can add up to six persons. Uh, it would increase our revenue. But I can assume that uh, our business can grow by at least uh, 10 to 15 percent uh, with this uh, change of measure. Having said that, we still have uh, some shortage of the business, you know, compared to the business uh, before the pandemic by about 20 percent. But this is already a very good sign of recovery of the catering business, particularly when you see the, uh, November and December are the two busy months for us. Especially when Christmas is coming, we foresee that uh, there will be a lot of uh, activities and the catering industry would further be positively affected. So I welcome the change of the measure. And of course, I'm also hoping that with the control of the pandemic uh, to zero cases per day, local cases, I mean, you know, the, the, the government would further relax the measure, uh, mm-hmm. for example, from six person uh, per table to gradually increase to uh, eight and then 12 persons per table. The current one, now you're expecting more patrons per table with the current relaxation. So will you allow different groups of customers to share a table or how do you keep the infection risks to a minimum? Well, of course, we are still taking the instruction uh, of the government by imposing a lot of, you know, uh, pandemic measures. The government has some guidelines for us to fight against the uh, pandemic. Um, and also uh, the uh, catering industry is doing a lot uh, to try to protect uh, the customers as well as the staff in, in, the, in the restaurants. And uh, this would also give confidence to the customers and that would also draw uh, more customers to our place. Now, do you think that the restaurant sector can be trusted to behave and follow the new rules? Well, of course, I'm hoping that all catering uh, operators would follow the new rules. Besides, I'm also hoping that the public, uh, including all the consumers uh, who, who goes to the restaurants, uh, would also take uh, precautionary measures uh, to fight the pandemic. Although the cases now is zero cases uh, locally, but uh, we are still encountering imported cases and also some cases which, uh, you know, is, well, probably is underlying in, in the community. And so we, we still have to take a lot of precautions on this. Cathay Pacific's Flight Attendance Union was left disappointed after talks with management over their concerns about new contracts that will see their pay slashed. The company asked staff to sign new contracts after axing thousands of jobs and shuttering its Cathay Dragon brand as it struggles to survive the fallout from the coronavirus pandemic. The new contracts are part of a major restructuring effort and the airline has given staff until Wednesday to sign. RTHK's Candice Wong covered the talks. The meeting doesn't seem to end with a concrete promise from the Cathay Pacific management in which the union said after more than three hours of talk, the management was quite firm in their position that they're still going to push for the new contract. It's that the management showed a video explaining why they're going to push for the new contract at the meeting. And the union said that's basically the same like last time they met with the management last week. The union vice chairwoman, Amber Soon, 
that that shows the management don't have any sincerity in talking to them, and they're still disappointed that the management doesn't seem to be willing to listen to their demands. As for the deadline of signing the new contract, they said the company will relay the concerns to the uh, senior level of management, again, without making any promise. That's why the union said that's the most urgent demand from them, because they want all staff who are willing to sign a new contract to get an extra allowance, not only for those who sign before tomorrow. So is the union planning any future action? As you can tell, the union wasn't really happy and or satisfied about the outcome. They said they're going to meet lawyers tomorrow and seek uh, legal advice from them over the next step. They didn't say what kind of action they're planning, but to stress they are not giving up at this stage. They're also going to meet with officials at the Labour Department tomorrow to try and make their voice heard. RTHK's Candice Wong speaking to Jim Gould. More than 60 million votes have already been cast in this year's US presidential election, but there's still plenty to play for. On Monday night, President Trump made his third visit in less than a week to Pennsylvania, a crucial state for him that holds 20 electoral college votes. Mr Trump won the state back in 2016 by just 44,000 votes. The BBC's Ben Wright has been visiting America's heartlands, known as the Rust Belt, to talk to some of the voters. On the road again. Just can't wait to get on the road again. I'm so pleased it's a mini. This is great. Hop in. So I'm heading north. All right. Wish me luck. <laughs> you got this. It wasn't long before Pittsburgh, a city once famous for steel, faded away into Pennsylvania farmland. The state's vast rural heart is deeply red Republican. The city's largely Democratic. And the places where they meet have a huge bearing on presidential politics. Erie County is you know, one of those. Said the volunteers, it's never been so fun to be told to go screw yourself, F off, all this stuff as it is out here. Joe Biden supporters are out with banners in Union City. This is a rural part of Erie County, which voted narrowly for Donald Trump in 2016 and helped him take the state. In their campaign office, the chair of the local Democratic Party, Jim Wirtz, said they were chasing voters Hillary Clinton overlooked. Certainly, rural Democrats are, are one group that have long felt perhaps a bit ignored by the Democratic Party, not only here uh, in Erie County, but throughout Pennsylvania and in many parts of the Midwest. Do you believe the polls? Do you think that Biden is comfortably ahead in Pennsylvania, or do you feel this is much tighter? I'm scared because of what happened in 2016. But I also feel like a lot of people did not vote in 2016 because they thought Hillary had it. And I really feel like this year they're going to come out and they're going to vote. Outside on Main Street, minds were made up. Uh, I did vote for uh, Trump last election, but he, he didn't get my vote this time. Why? Just the way he is. He speaks like a two-year-old and he takes no responsibility for anything. Trump is, is trying to open the economy and he's right. If he doesn't, everything's going to crash. I'm now heading north again through this beautiful countryside and I must say, lining the road, an endless mile after mile stretch of Trump, Pence, posters and banners. But I'm off to meet another lifelong Republican, a famous person here in Pennsylvania. Right this now, is Tom Ridge, former Republican governor of the state and Homeland Security Secretary uh, in the administration the of George W. Bush. I don't believe that the support for Donald Trump in this part of the state has diminished at all. You're a lifelong Republican. You served at the very top of government. 
but you have never been a fan of Donald Trump. Never. Ha have you changed your view at all over the last few years? Way back when in 2015, I mean, I thought he didn't have been an embarrassment to my party. I thought he didn't have been an embarrassment to my country. And as I take a look at the past four years, I think I was right, but I may be probably the only one that thinks that. And the chair of Erie Republicans, Verrill Salmon, thinks President Trump's vote is holding up well. The spontaneous activity in this county is phenomenal. The level of activity is at least five, six times greater than it was four years ago, and it was really upbeat then. Erie is on the edge of America's so-called Rust Belt, but it's faith in politics itself that seems to have corroded here. An international investigation has been launched into an incident in Doha Airport which allegedly resulted in a number of female passengers being internally searched in ways that they say they found humiliating. Once back home in Sydney, Australia, some of them reported the incident which followed reports of a foetus found in a bathroom in the Qatar terminal. Emily Ritchie is an Australian journalist who has been reporting on the incident. She spoke to the BBC's Carney Sharp. Some of the women have spoken out, some of the Australian women, I should say, to say that they felt alarmed, distressed and uh, humiliated, as well as confused. I think a lot of them said that they weren't ever told what was happening. The one flight in particular that we're aware of, which was flying from Doha to Sydney, was on the tarmac. It was delayed for a few hours and all of a sudden the 18 women on board, including the 13 Australian women, were shepherded off to an area under the airport where there are a few vans or ambulances. And some of the women just said that they weren't aware at all. They weren't told at any point what was going on. And that led to a lot of confusion. One woman said that she just assumed it had something to do with coronavirus. She thought that they were going off to get tested for that. And then all of a sudden noticed that the women coming out of the vans in front of her were visibly distressed and crying. And one woman said that she was scared, consistently asking, can someone please tell us what's happening? And then the female doctor who was conducting the search told her that they'd found a baby in a bin and we need to test you, mm -hmm. which was also very confronting. Yeah. I suppose the question is to many women, how would a heavily pregnant woman be flying such a long haul flight? It's not unusual, but then I'm sure people are asking those questions. Definitely they are. And, and that is something that is perplexing in this case. There's no answer to that currently. I don't know whether that's something because of the current pandemic. Maybe they were flying for reasons, for family reasons. I, yeah, you, and I don't know what their protocols are in Doha for allowing heavily pregnant women to fly. But as we said, I mean, p potentially there is the case that could be put forward that this woman wasn't flying. Potentially, it could be a woman who wasn't traveling. It could be someone who worked at the airport. We don't know who it is. The baby is yet unidentified, I believe. And so they haven't yet found uh, the person who gave birth. There seems to be a gap between the incident and the and it coming out into the news. Any reason why that was? Because this took place a couple of weeks ago. It did, yeah. And that was something that was confusing as well to us once Seven News broke this story on Sunday. There is, there seems to be a gap of about two to three weeks from the incident to when the media has found out about it. We were also confused at first because we thought that that meant that the government had only found out about it recently as well. But it has since been found out that our foreign minister, Maurice Payne, contacted the Qatari ambassador on October 6th 
to ask for detailed information and a report into the incident. So that was just four days after the incident. But since the media reporting has come out, she has contacted them again to stress the urgency and the dire need for transparent information surrounding the incident. So clearly that hasn't happened since. And Maurice Payne said yesterday she thought that the information would be coming imminently from Qatari authorities, but that, as far as we're aware, has yet to have occurred. And I'm not sure why there's been such a delay, but there has been a significant delay. What about the rest of the Australian government? You've got one female MP, a member of parliament, uh, speaking out and uh, demanding questions. Does she have the backing of the rest of Australia's government? Definitely, yes. And bipartisan support, definitely. There's members of the Labor government as well. The leader, Anthony Albanese, coming out saying that, of course, this is a very deeply disturbing and offensive and concerning set of events. And they're also demanding that the Qatari authorities be as transparent and yeah, provide a detailed report as quickly as possible so that we can understand what exactly what's occurred and why. Tell us, you know, what's been the reaction back home in Australia? How have how has uh, Australia been responding to this? A lot of people have, particularly in social media commentary, come out saying that they are deeply concerned about these events and that they are uh, potentially reconsidering once international travel becomes available to us again, flying through Doha and, and flying with Qatar Airways in the future. Scientists say small pockets of water on the moon may be more common than previously thought. They now think that coin-sized patches of ice exist in cold traps, areas that have probably not seen a ray of sunshine for billions of years. New research estimates that nearly 40,000 square kilometres of the moon's surface could hold water in this way. The water reserves would help future missions to Earth's only satellite. Anna Sargent from the Open University says they could even make a mission to other planets easier. Because the moon is a lot smaller than Earth, the gravity is a lot less. So it's actually more economical for us to launch missions from the surface of the moon than it would be from Earth. So if we can generate the fuel and the propellant that we need, which can come from water, then that would be a really exciting prospect. Those stories were part of the Newswrap programme, which was broadcast on RTHK earlier this evening. The Community Care Fund has launched the Living Subsidy Program for eligible non-public housing and non-CSSA low-income households to relieve their financial pressure. Applications are being handled in phases. Four or more person households can submit their applications from now until the 30th of November in person or by mail to designated service units. For details, please visit the Community Care Fund website or call 2180-6666. Live across Hong Kong, this is Radio 3. January to December, we'll have moments to remember. 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 Welcome one and all to our kind of music. Nostalgia from now until 1 a.m.
Fuck!